Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Lilo Danielson about a biography of the pacifist and labor activist A.J. Musty entitled American Gandhi, A.J. Musty and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. Lila, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, um, I guess I'll begin by saying that I'm a professor of history at Northern Arizona University. Um, I became interested in the history of modern social movements and the left uh, because my parents were part of the new left of the 1960s. And so that was very much an alive issue in my home. Uh, So I sort of had this sort of personal, natural interest in uh, the history of um, American social movements and the left. So that's how I sort of came to uh, the project on a personal level. On a more intellectual or historical level, um, I had been very uh, drawn into intellectual history when I was an undergraduate at the University of Rochester. I had the good fortune of working with uh, Christopher Lash and Robert Westbrook, who are really leaders in sort of, or or, um, uh, leading figures in doing American intellectual history, but also the history of the left. And so they really brought me into intellectual history. And then when I went to uh, the University of Texas at Austin for uh, my doctorate, uh, the faculty there really emphasized social history. And so what I really became interested in was how to combine intellectual history with social history with my interest in the left. And I did a couple of projects um, on some various figures, one being James Farmer, who was a very prominent civil rights activist. And as I was doing research on him, I kept seeing the name A.J. Musty. It turned out that he had been his mentor. He had helped him to found the Congress of Racial Equality, which went on to be one of the um, most important organizations of the civil rights movement. I also did research on a uh, sort of radical anarchist intellectual named Paul Goodman. And again, I discovered that he had been deeply influenced by Musty. So I just became extremely interested in, in this figure. Um, and I, there's also a remarkable collection of essays of his that were collected by the late Nat Hentoff. Um, it's called The Essays of A.J. Musty. And I encourage any of your listeners to check it out because as I read through those essays, I realized that he was um, a wonderful thinker, but also had been involved in all of these social movements, you know, that I could use him to look at the history of the peace movement, the labor movement, the social gospel, the civil rights movement, and then the anti-war movement. So he sort of um, answered all of, he he allowed me to answer many of my questions. That's one of the things that really stands out in your book is the the sheer length and scope of his activism, just really impressive. starts with the progressive era and, and, and runs all the way through to uh, the anti-war protests uh, of in the 1960s regarding both the uh, anti-nuclear movement and Vietnam. Yes, yes, that is definitely one of the things that drew me to him. It also made him a challenging figure to um, to sort of explore because I had to sort of know the historiography, the scholarship um, about um, American progressivism, about pa- the, the peace movement, the pacifist movement, the labor movement. And then, of course, he was also deeply involved in the secular left for a brief while, which I'm sure we'll get to. So I had to understand, you know, what is Marxism? What is Marxist-Leninism? And all of these sorts of, um, uh, so uh, uh, all of these, um, you know, pretty uh, challenging, deep intellectual traditions, as well as social movements. And yet, one of the first revelations for me when I read your book was uh, the nat- was his background, because it's not as though he comes from a, uh, a an intellectual tradition. He, he's part of a, of, of a 
a sort of a, a category of people that you, you note have been sort of understudied, which is these intellectuals who come up from the working class. And, and, and not only that, he, not only is he you know, a, a product of the working class, he's also uh, a foreigner. He comes to, the, to America at a fairly young age. Yes, I think that's right. There is a way in which one of the things I discovered when I began uh, reading about Musty is there's this assumption that because he appears in just about every book on social movements in the 20th century, but there's, you know, um, but it, it, he hasn't really been the, uh, treated by modern scholars in a really in-depth sort of way. And so there was always this assumption that he was middle class, that he was sort of fit that sort of stereotype of the progressive reformer, when in fact, as you say, he um, he comes from, uh, he's sort of from the backwater of the Netherlands, um, and his parents immigrate to the United States when he's six years old, and his father is an unskilled factory worker in, in the great furniture factories in Grand Rapids, and so, you know, and they're also strict Calvinists, like old school, you know, predestination, original sin, and so forth, and so to sort of try to figure out how he starts there. And then becomes, you know, the head of the anti-war movement in the 1960s is a really interesting question. And so the way I tried to sort of untangle that story was to, first of all, uh, understand him as part of a community. Um, for one thing, the Dutch in Grand Rapids may have largely been working class and, and impoverished, but they were also very tight-knit. And so Musty is raised in this you know, poor home. He, in the summers, he works with his dad at the furniture factory, but he's also brilliant and he's the oldest son. And so the community really supports him and send, and, you know, gives him a scholarship to go to prep school at the, the Reformed Church of America's um, Hope College. I think it was called Hope Preparatory Academy and then on to Hope College. So he has all of this support from the community. Um, the other thing that I think is important is that he, um, is working class and urban. Um, Grand Rapids was an industrial city. He lived right next to the railroad tracks and the factory. So when he later goes to the East Coast, uh, he goes to seminary at New Brunswick Theological Seminary, where he also you know, gets to go into New York City and take classes um, at Columbia University and um, New York University. Um, and does some preaching work uh, in the Lower East Side. He loves New York and feels very comfortable there. So um, I think he just feels very much at home in this sort of diverse, urban, working class world. And um, I think that has a lot to do with why, uh, why and how he makes this transition. And then I would wait, make one other point, um, and that is that one of the interesting things about the history of American Protestantism is that in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a real emphasis on realizing your Christian ideals through action. You know, that um, you had to go out into life and be adventurous. And this spirit really um, shapes him as a young man and then throughout his life. So I think those are some of the factors explaining why he was able to go from this really uh, kind of parochial, um, small, world of Dutch Calvinism into this broader, broader world and, and these various movements. And I was, uh, I, I couldn't help but notice that when you're describing all that, you're, you're fitting into the context of its time, that, uh, that, you know, engagement with the world, the desire to reform it, which is, we oftentimes associate with, uh, you know, Calvinist Protestantism is also very much a component of the, uh, of, of the social gospel and, and the reform uh, uh, impulses that you see uh, coming of age in the progressive era in the early 20th century. Yes, absolutely. And that is really critical for him because he comes, you know, he comes up in this Calvinist, very orthodox church. Um, he goes to New Brunswick Theological Seminary, which is, again, very orthodox, Calvinist and so forth. It's what? not just that, but as you describe it, it's also something of a very humdrum place, and he doesn't find it terribly engaging either. <laughs> yeah, right. They're sort of um, they're sort of reactionary. You know, they're very much opposed to all of these new, all of this social gospel nonsense and liberal theology and so forth. 
Um, but they're also situated right there, you know, right there next to New York City. And um, so there's this agreement that students can take classes at Columbia University, at New York University. And so it's there that he sort of starts to become familiar um, with John Dewey, who's this, uh, you know, the great pragmatist and Democrat with a small d, who uh, emphasizes that uh, truth is found in experience and experimentation. It's not sort of transcendent and um, sort of absolute. He gets to see um, the great William James give his famous lectures on the varieties of religious experience. And um, those have a real influence on him in terms of turning him gradually toward a more modern worldview. And then later, when he becomes um, a minister at a church in um, Upper Manhattan, he uh, starts taking classes at Union Theological Seminary. And that is really the hotbed of the social gospel. So he is has a Reformed tradition behind him. Yet I could not help but note the contrast between him and his brother Neil, who on the one hand speak, yes. hints to the sense that his family, he wasn't just an outlier, that, that, that there must have been something in his family that drew them towards uh, service, that drew them towards the ministry. And yet, as you point out, Neil had a very conventional uh, uh, you know, path as a minister, whereas uh, uh, AJ is very early on embracing the, the, the uh, not just the, the, the form portion of it, but the, the social engagement and, and, and the uh, social activism. Yeah, and as we'll get to in a moment, you know, pretty soon he's leading these um, this radical strike of textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and his parents back home in Grand Rapids are just puzzled and embarrassed by this behavior. And so one of the things I sort of realized as I was going through sort of the family records um, and so forth was that, you know, it was sort of understood that if you had a really bright older son, and these, these were all pretty big families, that he was the one the community supported and you would sacrifice everything for him to become a minister. And it was expected that his younger brother, Neil, would just you know work in the factory, basically. And his parents did not want to, disapproved of him you know, pursuing a higher education. Um, and Musty really, AJ, really has to intervene on his behalf. Um, and, uh, and then what I sort of argue, and I think, I think, you know, it's always hard to tell because you don't have a whole lot of records, but it seems to me that Neil fulfilled his parents' expectations, right? And that sort of allowed Musty to freed him up to to do what he was going to do. And as you described, he starts out at a early age doing that. And uh, it says something about his uh, gifts that, as you point out, his academic career is very distinguished. And... He comes out of New Brunswick, and he has his choice of available ministries. What made Fort Washington uh, such a desirable ministry uh, for in general and for him in particular? Well, I think he was very much struggling uh, between sort of the staying within the Dutch American community. There was a lot of pressure on him to do so. And also this desire to be in the action and to be part of America, essentially. And so by choosing Fort Washington, that's what he was selecting, because Fort Washington, one of the interesting things is you have this sort of Dutch immigrant community that's in the Midwest, that's very conservative, um, but uh, much of it was part of the Reformed Church of America, which had a much longer pedigree in the United States. And it was a very rich church and well-connected. And so Fort Washington Church had all of these, you know, sort of blue blood type um, Americans, you know, highly educated, many of them in social service. Um, so it sort of was a challenge to him. And he always was interested in it, a challenge. And so I think that was why he chose Fort Washington. It did really put him at the center of a lot of, of this very you know, active, reforming uh, upper class. But as you describe, he doesn't stay there very long. He's only there for five years. What's happening? Yes. Well, that's really interesting. So one of the, so a couple of things I want to say about Fort Washington. Um, first is that one of the things you see at Fort Washington is that Musty 
has tremendous leadership and organizational skills. And that's going to be really important for understanding why he is so critical to the history of the American left in the 20th century, because the left always has had great charismatic leaders, but they haven't usually or always had these sort of first-rate organizational skills. And Musty really has them. And he's very much able to work with different kinds of people. He's able to bring people together who disagree with each other. Um, and that's why he's sort of beloved by all, even when they disagree with him. And so you really see those traits emerge at Fort Washington because the church just, you know, triples, I think, in its membership. But by the same token, he really does, um, he, he really goes through this major crisis where he has to um, confront the fact that he doesn't uh, buy into Calvinist doctrines of original sin and um, biblical literalism and so forth. And at the time, if you didn't believe those things, you couldn't be part of the church. And so, um, you know, here's a man who will see over the course of his life, life always take his conscience very, very seriously. And so he reports his difficulties to um, the presbytery, or I, I think that I, I think that's not the right term, but it's like a presbytery of the Reformed Church. And so, you know, it's understood that he has to leave the church. But he still is staying within the profession as a minister. He is simply finding a faith that is more in line with his own evolving thinking about man and God and, and, and religion. Yes, and that's why he goes to the congregational church in, um, to a congregational church in Newton, Massachusetts, or Newtonville. Anyway, I wrote the book a while ago, so I forget. <laughs> anyway, he goes there, and, you know, that's right. This is a great liberal church. He gets to meet all of these wonderful um, uh, clergy, some of whom are at Harvard, and he becomes part of a discussion club, and he's sort of pulled into mystical traditions. Um, he's pulled into an organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a pacifist organization that is really interested in how do you apply Jesus's um, life to the great problems of our time. And so um, he really, find, he, he really um, finds the congregational church very affirming for this move toward liberalism, theological liberalism. At what point does he get drawn into pacifism? So it's right about, you know, one of the things, it's right about 1915, 1916. Um, I, he, you know, I think he doesn't understand it so much as pacifism at the time, um, right in 1915, 1916. I think he thinks of himself as pro-peace. And a lot of progressive people, socialists and so forth, were, didn't want the United States to get involved with the war. Of course, you know, President Wilson didn't want the United States to get involved with the war. Um, but once he does once war is declared in April of 1917, this this choice is really um, put toward, you know, all of these progressives and uh, socialists who are in this peace movement. You know, are you going to go along? And Musty has, you know, he always explained it this way, that he had received too solid a dose of Calvinism in his early years to sort of compromise with sin. And for him, war was sin. And so that meant that he could not be in favor of the war. So he, he wouldn't, he said to his congregation that he would not preach sermons in favor of the war. And so he was forced to resign because one of the things about the World War I era is that it was an intensely repressive time. You have all of these attacks on civil liberties. You have the Espionage and Sedition Act. And um, so uh, you really, once he made that decision, he becomes, you know, somewhat of a persecuted figure, you know, um, can't get a job except, you know, the Quakers give him a meeting house in Rhode Island where he can work as a part-time preacher. This is when he and others uh, form the American Civil Liberties Union um, because they're really concerned about civil liberties. Why is it that you don't have the right of conscientious objection? Why is it that now they're saying you can't speak out against the war, these sorts of things. So um, so that's what's sort of interesting is in becoming a pacifist, in for, for him, it was really this question of his conscience. But it also, just because of the historical context, thrust him into radicalism, whether he liked it or not. The uh, resignation that you described uh, is, uh, I find interesting because 
it said something about him that the congregation was willing to give him more of a leave of absence to think about it. And maybe they were hoping that he would see sense in the need for the war, but it also seemed that they appreciated him so much that they didn't want to lose him. Yes, and you see that time and time again in his career where um, he's considered so valuable um, as a leader that even as disagreements be, uh, uh, emerge, um, and, uh, that, that there's this desire to hang on to him. But he, like I said, he was always, you know, whether for good or ill, always followed his conscience. And so if he saw that there was an irreconcilable tension, then he was willing to make the break. And he thought it was probably best for everyone that he did. What leads him to move from pacifism towards labor organization? And in your book, you make it seem as though that when he does so, it's not just that he's expanding, but that he really seems to be transitioning. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit of that as well. Like the degree to which, I mean, does he basically set aside pacifism or is it more that he's just so focused on, on, on labor organization that the pacifist themes simply just drop away for a while? Yeah, that's a really good point. A really good question. Um, I think that for a long time, we're talking about, say, 1919 through the end of the 1920s, he very much still considers himself a pacifist. He's part of that group I mentioned earlier, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, where it's really a group of Christians who are interested in experimenting with how you can apply your Christian ideals to social situations. Um, it's also very pacifist in trying to experiment essentially like, like Christ with nonviolence, right? Um, you know, non-resistance. Uh, by the same token, he's very drawn to the labor movement. And um, I don't think he thinks those things are entirely in tension until the end of the 1920s. Um, so why is he drawn into the labor movement? Well, the labor movement was it, you know, at the time. Um, historians like to say that the great consuming question in the United States, really from the late 19th century through the 1940s, was the so-called labor question or the social question. And so, uh, and of course, uh, this is before you have um, a welfare state or protections for, for, for labor. And um, so after he resigns from his, uh, his pulpit in, uh, from the congregational church, he very much is sort of uh, exploring these questions. And he becomes part of a group he calls the Comradeship which are other Christian ministers who are really, they're praying, they're studying the Bible, they're trying to find how they can be relevant. And he's living in Boston at the time, and he hears of this huge strike of textile workers that has taken place in Lawrence, Massachusetts. We're talking 30,000 workers. And they decide, well, why don't we try to apply our ideals in that situation? And, you know, like I said, he comes from this working class background. He feels very comfortable around immigrant and working class people which is somewhat unusual among other Protestants of his generation. And so he goes in and he is just incredibly inspired by the solidarity, by the, um, and by the challenge, right? Because in Lawrence, there are, you know, it was typical for a factory floor to have, um, you know, 12 different nationalities speaking 12 different languages, um, you know, and here they are trying to build a strike together. And so with his organizational skills, his charisma, He's really um, hailed right away by the, by the strikers, and he manages, as head of the strike, to lead it to victory despite incredible repression and violence by the authorities. So um, I think he just really, you know, sort of he has this vision that he wants to build the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, that sounds very dramatic, but I think that's really what motivated him. And he very much, like many people, believed that the labor movement was sort of historically destined to 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 be the agent of that social transformation. And so he's just, he loves the labor movement. So that's how he ends up there. It does seem to be the pattern of his life, which is that he, he finds a cause and he really invests himself in it. it be it a broad cause like, say, labor organization or something, as we'll talk about in a bit, uh, like Brookwood or, and, 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 and how that really, he really, you know, puts his, abilities and his time and his energy into making it work and 
so much of that success is traceable to what he invests in it. Yes, I think so. I think that's completely fair. That's what I found in the historical record. You know, the archives, I mean, he's just at the center of everything, um, organizing, writing letters, corresponding, um, getting into the, the nitty gritty of organizing and all of that. So, yes, I do think that's a that's an apt characterization of him and his role. Yeah, and that, that Lawrence strike really stood out as I was reading because you compare it to the other labor activism in 1919, which was a very difficult year for labor. You had the Boston police strike, which right. which is how uh, Calvin Coolidge came to national fame was in his handling of it. You had yeah. the, the Seattle strike and, and, yeah. and the American Legion going after the IWW. And, and those were, so labor had, labor had a series of setbacks that year. And yet in Lawrence, you have, you know, uh, you know, retrospect was a temporary success, but a success nonetheless. Yes, that's right. Um, he was very successful. And, you know, you mentioned these other upsurges of labor and these the general strike in Seattle and so forth. And um, I think it's important to keep in mind two things that you're sort of hinting at. One is, is that, you know, there had just been the Bolshevik Revolution and and there really was this sense among labor and among radicals that this new world was about to be born, right? Socialism would triumph. By the same token, um, the American government and um, business were afraid of the same thing. And so they really cracked down. And that's ultimately what destroys the... So after what happens with Lawrence is Musty manages to just transform it into something called the Amalgamated Textile Workers Union of America. And um, because there's textile strikes all over the Northeast and I think even in the Midwest. And so they managed to organize this union of about 50,000 um, at its height. And, uh, you know, they're doing OK. They're actually signing some contracts. But uh, the Red Scare is simply devastating. I mean, there's constant raids by the Attorney General Palmer. Um, and also there's a economic recession after the war. And so that really puts labor in a defensive position. And so really by 1921, his union is almost crushed. It, one of the things that uh, you talk about during this period, and, and perhaps we've been overemphasizing one element of this, is that it's not that he's just dealing with the, uh, you know, the hostility of business groups and, and the authorities, but he also has the opposite challenge of dealing with this, the fact that in on the left you have this resurgent force or this, this surging force of communism, which, as you mentioned, you with the Bolshevik Revolution has a stature, has a uh, has a cachet as the cutting edge, the the uh, the way forward, uh, it seems, and and how uh, Musty spends as much time uh, coping with that challenge as he does the challenge of, 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 of business opposition to the authorities. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And that becomes a real preoccupation of his because at the same time that he's trying to sort of save his union, uh, there are a lot of Italian anarchists in the union and they um, actually bungle some bombings. And, you know, um, then you have all these divides between socialists, some who think that uh you know, communist that you know to join the Communist International and others who want to stay within the Socialist Party. So there's all this contention and even violence that's sort of dividing the left. I think I'm not entirely. I can't remember off the top of my head when the Communist Party goes underground, but it does so uh, pretty swiftly after or during the Red Scare, which is also a problem from Messi's point of view because it's hard to you know it's sort of a moving target. Um, the other thing is that the workers are really good at going out on strike, but they're not necessarily very good union members. And so, yes, th these are huge challenges. And that's why he decides to become involved in the workers' education movement, um, which was really a popular cause both in the United States and in uh, Europe and, and in Latin America during the 1920s. And there's this real effort to maintain this sort of socialist idealism of the World War I years, but also to um, focus on uh, developing good union leaders, uh, uh, sort of modernizing the labor movement. You know, on the one hand, you have this very uh, hyper radical left wing 
But then on the other hand, you have the American Federation of Labor, which is very conservative and really only interested in organizing skilled workers. And so, you know, there's sort of this this challenge. And that's what the workers education movement tries to sort of deal with. Um, And so, you know, there's a real emphasis at this Brookwood Labor College that he directs of um, always keeping I, I call their philosophy labor pragmatism. And the reason I call it that is um, they adopt this sort of experimental um, method of a John Dewey. But by the same token, they also uh, very much say that the purpose of their education is to build up uh a working class that will be able to mobilize and overthrow capitalism, whether by nonviolent means or whatever. So they sort of side with labor very explicitly. Um, But then the question becomes, well, okay, so how do we move the working class forward? And, and they, they really want to um, consider all points of view. So you would, if you were taking a class at um, Brookwood, you would maybe read some Samuel Gompers of the American Federation of Labor, but you'd also read some Lenin. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of diverse voices that you would be coming, come in contact with and try to grapple with and, um, and uh, to articulate um, new kinds of ideas, to try to bring it together to maybe synthesize it into a, uh, a, a, a labor philosophy and method that would be more effective than it had been in the past. And uh, Brookwood, which is in uh, uh, New York, is, is uh, that labor college is Musty's running it. He's not just a faculty member there. Yeah, yeah, he directs it. And it really has a tremendous amount of influence on the labor movement because workers' education was quite popular during the 1920s. And um, so a lot of times people will say, you know, a story might say Brookwood Labor College without recognizing that it wasn't just at Brookwood. Brookwood was a residential college for working class union organizers, you know, um, and most, you know, most workers can't do that. And so there was a whole, there were a whole lot of extension programs set up. Also, many state federations of labor or local labor bodies would have workers education classes, perhaps at night or at conferences. And much of their curriculum and pedagogy was drawn from Brookwood. So it really had a huge influence and um, initially was pretty successful in kind of bringing together different parts of the labor left. Um, So you would have, for example, um, well, first of all, um, a number of AFL unions um, contributed money to the college and um, uh, provided scholarships for maybe their organizers to go to the college. Um, but you also would have, you know, speakers who would come to the college from just a wide variety of uh, viewpoints. So A. Philip Randolph, the great um, African-American head of the sleeping car orders. I'm trying to remember their full name. But anyway, he's there. And then you would have Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a Protestant socialist, come and speak. Um, you know, just a, a great variety of people came. And, and even the Communist Party would send some of its uh, folks to to attend Brookwood. Now, why does he leave Brookwood and, and what does he leave Brookwood to do? <laughs> OK, so basically what happens is that Brookwood really comes to and must, in a sense, come to represent this progressive wing of the labor movement. And what they're very interested in doing is they want the American Federation of Labor to prioritize organizing industrial work unskilled workers. Um, And these are really the new working class at the time, because this is when you have all these Ford Ford factories, these automobile factories, these rubber factories that use these assembly lines and rely on unskilled, semi-skilled labor. The American Federation of Labor isn't really that interested in organizing those workers because they think that, oh, they're not organizable. They're easily replaced. So how could they sort of have the, you know, how could, um, How could any kind of strike that they conducted mean anything significant? So um, so there's so anyway, what they're trying to do is essentially move the AFL to the left and the AFL actually becomes more conservative over the course of the 1920s. And um, actually, Red Bates, Musty and Brookwood Labor College um, pulls its union from its unions from sponsoring it. Um, There's still a number of you know, rather 
progressive unions that will send their students there and support the college. But Musty really sees this as a major challenge and a major problem, because, particularly because you have the onset of the Great Depression um, in 1929. So he's very eager to jumpstart um, an industrial labor movement. He wants the labor movement to have idealism and militancy, and um, he thinks that's the answer. And so he organizes and uh, he, he helps to create an organization called the Conference for Progressive Labor Action. And essentially, as its name suggests, they were just very interested in organizing and uh, organizing industrial workers and being very militant and kind of pushing the labor movement forward, as I said. So as he becomes deeply involved in the CPLA, uh, he begins to alienate some other members of the faculty at Brookwood who fear that he's turning the school into sort of a, you know, the school had always sort of prided itself on not taking sides in the various disputes between labor and the left. And um, and so they fear that what Musty's doing, because the CPLA really becomes a major player, it leads a number of big strikes and um, and in a sense becomes more and more political. And um, so there's a lot of pressure on Musty to stop his activities as part of the CPLA, um, but he refuses to do so. And that's why in 1933, I believe, he leaves the organization. It, it, this gets to something that you talk about at the end of the book, which is something that uh, I, I want to kind of go back and make a little clear is that you know, labor back then, you, you had the AFL, you also though have these other organizations, and, and labor in, in retrospect is on the point of a real transition into what it becomes in the middle of the 20th century, which is sort of big labor. Yes, that's what, thank you for <laughs> clearing that up. Continue, please. And, and, and how, in some ways, what Musty is uh, is, is doing here anticipates, uh, on one level, uh, the the formation of the CIO in, in the middle of the 1930s. And yet, you describe how he is uh, participating in this uh, in this clash with John L. Lewis, the uh, great uh, uh, labor leader uh, from the uh, United Mine Workers, and who uh, is you know, pivotal, the creation of the uh, CIO, but at the same time also represents that sort of that, that almost that craft mentality of, you know, watching out for the workers. The, the, the idea of how labor could, you know, be favor, uh, could be uh, about reforming all of society, uh, reforming uh, the system, or it could be about advancing the gains of their members. And Mustard's very much invested in that former camp. And he's trying to push, he's tra he's battling with those people, not just the AFL, but people like John L. Lewis, who are trying to push it more in that latter camp, which is where it eventually goes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, is that it's important to realize that, um, as you say, you know, um, the mass of industrial workers were not organized in the early 1930s. And we don't have, you know, the, the sort of protections for labor that are going to emerge out of the New Deal haven't um, been created yet. And so Musty really wants to spearhead and indeed does help to jumpstart this movement for industrial unionism. But there is some tension between him and some of the people who are going to go, who will go on to uh, really lead that movement. And you point to John L. Lewis, who's a really interesting figure because the United Mine Workers of America was affiliated with the AFL. Um, but Lewis himself was sort of a... Um, sort of a thug, I guess you would say, sort of the stereotypical sort of, you know, demanding complete loyalty by his, by his, from his members and so forth. And, um, and as you say, very much interested in advancing unions and the working class, but without that sort of broader vision of social transformation or social reform. Of course, there were many members of what becomes the Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, who were much more socially reformist. You think of people like Sidney Hillman or Walter Ruther, who, you know, were really social Democrats at heart. Um, but one of the things that I chart in the book is that the early 1930s were really just, I mean, uh, I'm trying to re were turbulent years. That's Irving Bernstein's uh, term. I mean, just alive with strikes and unrest and so forth. And Musty gets very caught up in all of that. And really, by the time the Congress of Industrial Organizations is formed, he's not just a social reformer, but he's a revolutionary. 
Um, this is when he sort of becomes part of where, where he identifies as a Marxist-Leninist, where he rejects pacifism. And, um, and so that has a lot to do with why he's not you know, really part of the CIO when it comes into being. Though many of the people who he trained at Brookwood and in the CPLA do become very important in the CIO. Yeah, by that point, he's already, uh, you know, involved in forming the American Workers' Party. He seems to be very much committed towards trying to emphasize that when the shift with the New Deal is towards the idea of of, of, of labor protections and the creation of a, of, of a you know, system of support for the American worker that is much more statist and, and, and much, much narrower than what Musty was thinking. Yes, yes, very well put. I think that's true. I think I have, I have my book here, and I'm, look, I have a quote from, I think it's chapter seven, and this is something Musty writes right around 1931 and 1932, as he's moving into this more Marxist-Leninist phase. He says, this whole social democratic tendency and philosophy, I am against as I have ever been against anything in my life. I think I have always, since 1916, been a revolutionist and not a social democrat. And I think, you know, that's something that's a little hard to digest, especially nowadays when even, you know, the reforms of the New Deal era seem radical. But he really, he really did identify as a revolutionary. And, you know, so it is true for reasons that we can go into that he does leave the Marxist-Leninist left and become returned to pacifism and return to Christianity. But he would still identify with this um, as a revolutionary, you know, really seeking to fundamentally transform society rather than sort of piecemeal reform. Why does he make that move back? Well, you know, he loved the labor movement and he loved the left. He always believed in commitment and action. And, you know, he was this fundamentally public and political person, you know, to his very core. And um, one of the things was that he always felt that the churches, the Protestant churches, but also the Catholic church were far too identified with the status quo, too middle class, too, too um, and even the pacifists themselves, too timid. And so... Um, but by the same token, you know, he he took his, you know, he, you know, we have, you know, sort of remembering that he he came from this Christian background. He believed that how you treated people mattered, right? That means and ends did matter. That being ethical toward one another, giving each other a chance was really important. And um as he sort of moves through this more secular Marxist left, he discovers all of this infighting. He's treated very badly in the um, American Workers' Party or the, the Workers' Party of America. I don't want to get into all the sectarianism because it's really, you know, shouldn't be the central focus. Or it, I try not to make it the central focus of the book, but his, his movement is taken over by a Trotskyist group. And they use all sorts of methods of deceit and... Um, they treat Musty, even though he's the head of the, the party, with a lot of contempt. And he comes to believe that they had violated what he calls working class ethics, that they weren't, as I said before, kind of giving the other a chance, you know, instead just seeking to manipulate and use. And he started to think that this is really a fundamental problem with labor and the left, that they had this sort of idea that if you just change external circumstances, you're going to create better people in a better society. And he's he comes to believe that it no, it leads to too many compromises and it distorts and uh, corrupts the left. And of course, you have what's going on with Stalin in the Soviet Union as sort of confirmation of this. Um, and so this is why he uh, really has this crisis. And then, of course, being a Christian, he also has this sort of um, experience where he feels that God speaks to him and he returns to the church and he returns to pacifism. And that's where he starts to try to figure out, okay, how can I be a Christian? How can I be a pacifist and a revolutionary? And this is when he begins to explore Gandhian nonviolence as a method that would allow him to be those three things simultaneously. One of the things you talk about in the book when we're talking about uh, nonviolence, that it was the degree to which so many older pacifists were critical about it because they felt so coercive. 
Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, so um, there were a couple of things. Pacifists sort of in the United States tended to come out of either a conscientious objection tradition, which was sort of an individualistic sort of, you know, individual opposition to war that you can't in good conscience participate and you accept the consequences of that. Or they also came out of this idea that you had to, that, that being like Jesus would mean that you listen to both sides of a dispute and you try to find some place of reconciliation. And Musty had never felt comfortable with that because he thought it was perfectly fine to side with, say, the workers against the employers um, without denying that the employers were fundamentally persons. Um, so, yes, there, there was this real sense that Gandhi, by using things like boycotts, by the collective form of his protest, that it could sort of that it had a coercive element or a, a you know a non-Christian element to it, um, and you know Musty had always believed that you could have collective action that you could side with one group rather than another and still um, and, and still be ethical. And then of course Gandhi really emphasized the power of self-suffering, right, um, sacrificial love, and so forth as a means of transformation so that you're transforming, first of all, yourself, like Gandhi always tried to be as pure as possible. You know, he would, he would meditate, I think one day a week, um, you know, stay away from the political action to kind of get in touch with himself and kind of do that sort of thing, make sure that he himself was pure. Uh, but also, even though he directly confronted the British in these, you know, in these sort of collective um, protests, he also did hope to convert the oppressor, right, by the power of his willingness to take suffering upon himself. And for Musty, that was just very much fit with where his thinking was going in the, the late 1930s. And of course, he returns to pacifism as war becomes this growing uh, presence in the world. How does he respond to World War II? And, and, and what does he do in terms of the pacifist movement in America during the war? Um, yes. Yeah, so World War II was one of the hardest parts of Musty's life to write about because, you know, as I said, he always had this this conscience and this sort of, you know, in a, in a sense of perfectionism. And so the fact that he did not support American entry in the war, you know, was something that was hard for me to get around. Um, one thing to know is that he didn't resist the war as, say, um, he would the Vietnam War. But instead, it was that as a pacifist, he could not in good conscience um, support a war because war violated his fundamental beliefs, right? Because it others the enemy. And also, of course, modern warfare um, often doesn't distinguish between civilian and soldier and that sort of a thing. And he had a critique, too, of the tendency of um, the allies to sort of idealize the West. You know, he was always he would always remind people that, you know, Americans that the United States had Jim Crow. It interned Japanese Americans. Britain and France had these colonies, you know, that, um, you know, so we sort of somewhat questioned the idea that the war was a war for democracy, per se. But anyway, there was this great desire to prove that pacifism was relevant. And so what he really focuses on, he becomes the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation in 1940. And that's the biggest pacifist organization in the United States at the time. And he decides he's going to transform the movement, the organization, into a vehicle for building um, a, a, a great Gandhian movement. Um, and so this is when you have pacifists begin to experiment, literally experiment with Gandhian nonviolence. So um, uh Fellowship of Reconciliation helps to found the Congress of Racial Equality in 1941 or 1942. And these are, they begin doing sit-ins in restaurants conducted in the spirit of nonviolence, trying to desegregate uh, restaurants. This is in the North and the Midwest. Um, and, uh, and then you also, you know, a lot of pacifists were in conscientious objector camps and they would, or in prisons. And so they would sort of experiment with Gandhian nonviolence to challenge maybe certain regulations that they felt were um, oppressive or, or that were that in federal prisons, I believe were uh, segregated at the time that may need to be fact-checked, but they, they would 
I think they were, and they would protest that as well. So that's what he did during World War II is really pioneer um, nonviolence. And that's something he never gives up because you have this, uh, in the book you describe how not just Mussey, but uh, these members of the fellowship, these conscientious objectors, were so affected by the dropping of the atomic bombs. Yes. And and how that's something that that, that Musty really uh, focuses on and and never really lets go of. Uh, In a way, he seems to to, uh, shift his focus a bit to Vietnam near the end of his life. But you you describe that from 1945 until the early 1960s, he is at the forefront of a lot of this opposition to uh, atomic weapons uh, and and, and uh, what that means for, for society. Yes, I yeah, that's that's a really good point. And one thing I want to say also is that the people that he trains within the Fellowship of Reconciliation and with, within the Congress of R- Racial Equality really become the key figures, some of the key figures in the civil rights movement and the pacifist movement. So we're talking about Bayard Rustin, James Farmer, Glenn Smiley, he's, he sits with Martin Luther King on the bus in Montgomery after they successfully complete that boycott. Dave Dellinger, who was a you know hugely important peace activist in the 60s. Um, so I just wanted to put that plug in as to why he was so significant there. Um, but yeah, so with the explosion of the atomic bomb, he really experiences this sense that the United States um, has really gone too far. That this sort of faith in science, this sort of um, this materialism and so forth have gone so far that they, you know, they threaten to, you know, destroy the entire planet. And so that really becomes his overriding obsession. And he uh, he organizes uh, two groups that are going to be really important, especially the latter. One is the peacemakers. And this was, you know, a group of radical pacifists. He led this organization who even at the height of the Cold War, when you know, any kind of nonconformity was sort of frowned upon, they would, um, you know, refuse to pay taxes for the, uh, to the state in protest against atomic weapons and the nuclear arms race. Um, And they would do little sit-ins and protests at atomic energy commissions and so forth. They were really quite small, but in the mid-1950s, there's a real sense that a space is opening up for more, where they might be able to draw greater numbers of people. And this is when Musty moves to, and others, moves to organize what became known as the Committee for Nonviolent Direct Action Against Nuclear Weapons. And they do all sorts of huge peace campaigns that involve civil disobedience. Um, they, they do a, a, a San Francisco to Moscow walk for peace that's, you know, that uh, gets quite a bit of attention in the early 1960s and lots of other sorts of things. But yes, so he really helps to, he's really at the center of radical opposition to nuclear weapons, but he also um, helps uh, more what we might call nuclear pacifist people who believe that with nuclear weapons, you know, war was just something you couldn't support anymore. He helps them to organize the SANE, which is the, um, what is that, the Committee for a SANE Nuclear, nuclear Policy. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, that's really at the center of his his efforts in the 1950s. And you, and you point out how uh, he, all, all, the uh, the people that he knew uh, that, that uh, who uh, he helped in terms of uh, their developing activism, like Bayard Rustin and James Farmer, he was a uh, supporter of the civil rights movement and, and he participates in that. But you also describe how oftentimes there was this divide mm-hmm. and how you, how, for example, you uh, for for many African Americans, for example, when uh, you, you're talking about, you mentioned that one uh, protester holding the sign saying, "No troops in Cuba, Vietnam, and Dixie." Yeah. How African Americans are going to read that very differently than it may have been intended by the uh, white pacifists who wrote that, or how they were protesting uh, at Air Force Base, which was one of the few places in Georgia at that time in the early '60s where you had an integrated workforce. So it. it, it there was a point at which he, you, they, the left was not necessarily united in all these goals, and that sometimes he had to straddle these priorities. Yes, I think that's right. I, I, you point to a really, um, I think, a, you know, a, 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 
some of the tensions within this broader movement. Um, because, for example, white pacifists um, very much supported the civil rights movement. You have a lot of them, you know, doing all sorts of things to support it. And in some cases, at least in the North, helped to spearhead it. Um, but by the same token, there was sort of an anarchist element within the pacifist movement. And there was this real sense that the goal was conversion, right? That you wanted your self-sacrifice to convert the oppressor, right? And for African-Americans, by contrast, that certainly was, you know, obviously they embraced nonviolence and there was a hugely, huge emphasis on Christian suffering and redemption and so forth in the movement. But they wanted the federal government to intervene in the South to, you know, to protect their 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment rights. And so sometimes you'd have these sort of anarchist, pacifist, often nonconformist sort of bohemians coming to the South, um, saying that um, peace and civil rights were one in the same sort of struggles and really causing problems or seeming to not respect the African-American civil rights movement. So there were those sorts of tensions. Another tension that's sort of an interesting one as well is there's been a great deal of scholarship on the dilemmas that beset the, the African-American struggle for freedom from the 1940s through the 1960s. And that has to do with, um, in the 1940s during World War II, many African-Americans had become quite politicized, right? And so they, they linked their struggle against segregation to the struggle against fascism. Um, they also were very anti-imperialist and could be quite critical of U.S. foreign policy. Um, but by the Cold War, there's really this, within the Democratic Party for all sorts of reasons, um, the liberal left as well, this idea that, you know, you got to go along with the Cold War. You got to not criticize U.S. foreign policy. And then the Democratic Party will kind of, you know, press reforms in civil rights. That's sort of the agreement. So the civil rights movement was very nervous about, you know, uh, connecting the struggle for civil rights to these issues of U.S. foreign policy um, and nuclear weapons. But then, of course, the war in Vietnam. And so um, so Musty, in addition to sort of papering over and trying to kind of find uh, trying to sort of. Um, uh, negotiate between the, the sort of pacifist anarchists on the one hand and the African-American Southerners on the other. Um, also, though, really pushed, um, really took it upon himself to push the Black Civil Rights Movement to take a stand on the Cold War and specifically the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War seemed to make that effort a lot easier because it was not just this abstract looming threat of annihilation. It was the growing and very real prospect that men were going abroad to fight in a war, the, uh, out, the, the, the purpose of which was becoming increasingly questioned by Americans uh, as, those, as the decade went along. Yeah, and of course, Musty wasn't alone in this because as um, people in SNCC and CORE became radicalized or really politicized, they began making these connections themselves, right? This uh, connection between the sorts of oppression they're facing, the white supremacy they're facing in the South, and then this this undeclared war in Vietnam. So, so Musty's not alone in making those connections, but there really was this reluctance of the civil rights leadership to 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 sort of take a stand and. Um, so you see Musty writing all these letters to uh, Martin Luther King and to John Lewis and to Julian Bond and others saying, OK, come on, we need to do this. We need to take the stand. Join us because Musty helps to organize the, the Declaration of Conscience in 1965. These are these early sort of protests against the Vietnam War and trying to get them to be involved and take a stand. Yet he also does something that he has not done during the two uh, previous periods where he's really actively engaged in a very visible war, which is that he goes to the country at war. And granted, this is because Vietnam is a little different from World War II and World War I, but he goes to South Vietnam and right before he dies, he goes to North Vietnam and he meets with people and he's, he's not just campaigning in the United States, he's also very visibly uh, engaged in, in, in Vietnam as well. Yes, I think that's true. And, you know, if there's one area for research, by the way, I should say that there's a lot more to be done on Musty. And um, he was very much part of a transatlantic, even a transnational peace movement. So 
before he goes to Vietnam, he also goes to places like uh, he's all over Europe. He's in India, uh, meeting with Gandhians there. But yes, it's it. He is so consumed with the war in Vietnam. He writes in 1965 or 1966 he, how sick he is that Americans are napalming the Vietnamese. Um, he has this real radical critique of the war as not being an error or a mistake, but the logical result of, um, of American foreign policy, which he believes is imperialistic and so forth. Um, so he's absolutely devastated by the war. And even though he's an ex a very, very old man at the time, he goes uh, to South Vietnam uh, with some other peace activists. I think that's in 19... Maybe 1966, and then I, I thought I thought you had that done at, at 65 because I think uh, okay. North Vietnam is 66. Thank you. That's right, North Vietnam in late 66, and when he goes to North Vietnam, he meets he meets with Ho Chi Minh and the head of the communist the Vietnamese Communist Party, and and you know he sees of course he goes with other clergymen, um, and he sees of course that the United States has been bombing North Vietnam, which of course the uh, United States had said it wasn't doing, um, and. And many people be would believe that that's sort of what kills him, right? Because he's, I forget the age, but he's in his 80s. And, you know, going to Vietnam and coming back was very hard on him because he dies about a month or two after that. that you, you, you mentioned that a few months previously, he actually uh, passed on taking a trip to Europe because he said that the exertion would kill him. And yet a few months later, when the, the, this opportunity presents itself, he doesn't really even seem to think twice. Yeah. about undertaking this because this is about fighting for what he really believes in. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, he's he's a really interesting figure. You know, one of the things that I play with throughout the book is how, you know, he's sort of a prophet and he identifies as such where he's going, he's sort of calling America to awareness of its sins, you know, kind of pronouncing judgment, but then also saying, repent, you know, be righteous, do the right thing. Um, and he'll take very radical actions in pursuit of that. You know, he does... He's arrested, you know, countless times at um, in protests against nuclear weapons for, for against racism and so forth. But by the same token, um, he also always has this kind of pragmatic approach. And by pragmatic, I really want to emphasize, I mean, experimental, inclusive, flexible. And so he also is interested in bringing people together, not just being sort of this lone prophet, you know, out there kind of. Um, pronouncing doom on everyone. And so I think it's really significant, too, if we're talking about the Vietnam War, to, to see that he um, is the one who helps, he's sort of at the center and is the head of um, the moratorium. What is it? The mobilization, no, mobilization against the war in Vietnam, that organization that really becomes the umbrella group for uh, protesting the Vietnam War. And that brings in a whole diverse array of groups. It's not just sort of the radical pacifists. He mentioned how one of the, that, that's one of his uh, really major contributions at the end of his life is encouraging the pacifists to not be quite so pure in terms of their unwillingness to ally with people who may not necessarily share their ideals, but do have common goals. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I would say if, if Musty has any legacy that's important today, I mean, I think there's a number of ways in which he is relevant for today, but this idea of trying ways to trying to find ways to work together, but also knowing what you believe in, you know, and having your, your, having a vision, having, being idealistic and so forth. And, and perhaps that might mean that you engage in certain kinds of actions or groups that others may not agree with, but to always try to find points of connection and places where you could coalition, build a coalition. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, you know, one of the, one of my arguments in the, in this, in American Gandhi, this book on Musty, is that um, historians have really not taken religion seriously when they've studied social movements and the left, the, the history of the American left. Um, and, you know, they do that with the civil rights movement, but they haven't done this with other uh, movements. And so together with two of my um, friends and colleagues, Doug Rossinow and Marion Mullen, We've, we're putting together an anthology on the history of the religious left in the 20th century United States. And we've got a great collection of essays that are coming together that look at the farm workers movement, that look at um, the early Socialist Party, that uh, look at um, 
even the evangelical left that look at the Catholic left. Um, and we're trying to kind of put these all together and show how religion has shaped um, left political culture and social movements throughout the 20th century. What connects them? What, what are the differences between them? Where do we find continuities? Um, that sort of thing. So that's what I'm working on right now. Sounds like a fascinating project. I hope so. There's been a lot of attention to the role of religion and specifically Christianity on the right. So I do think there's a market for this. At least I hope so. Well, uh, Leela, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Mark. This was great.